Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Uh, if you would, please grab a Bible and open up to the book of Colossians in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from around seats nearby you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. We'd love for you to have it so you can read God's Word for yourself. This is our last Sunday in our summer series on overflowing generosity. And we've seen how God's generosity transforms us very personally to become generous like him. So it's God's very nature to overflow with generosity. God is, the triune God is by nature a giver, not a taker. Uh, he has what the Puritan comment, Tom, or, uh, Richard Tibbs said, a spreading goodness as we've seen. So it's why he created the world, not because he needs us, but because he wants to share himself and bless us and spread his goodness. So God is an endless source of grace, a spring or a fountain of generosity that overflows to us. And as it comes to us, God fills us with his grace so that we spill over and overflow toward others around us. So each week in this series, we've considered one aspect of God's generous grace. So we've seen that God is love, Father, Son, and Spirit, this triune fellowship of love who pours out his love into us to fill us, to receive his love and then extend it to others. We receive and extend the welcome of Christ to one another. We receive and extend God's generous wealth to one another and to ministries and mission. And we receive God's comfort in affliction so that we can comfort one another in affliction. And so this morning, we're going to see how God's forgiveness transforms us to forgive like him. So God has forgiven us in Christ, and we receive that forgiveness, and we extend it to others. Forgiveness is at the heart of real Christianity, but forgiveness is hard, isn't it? To forgive someone who has deeply wronged you is one of the hardest things you will ever do in life. Forgiveness is often neglected as well. Many relationships remain superficial or are deepened and then become superficial because they're missing forgiveness. Many marriages end because of the inability of one or both spouses to extend forgiveness. If you want two words that can lead to a healthy marriage, the two words are repentance and forgiveness. So when Christine and I do premarital counseling, we talk a lot about repentance and forgiveness. One of our favorite books to commend people is When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey, Harvey and he has a chapter on forgiveness. Um, and it's at the heart of what we talk to young couples for. And when we see uh, marriages on the rocks or struggling or withering or ending, this issue is invariably at the heart of it, either an unrepentant person or an unforgiving person. And Colossians chapter 3, verse three, 13, verse 13 here, gives us a condensed summary of Christian forgiveness. It's just, it's even just part of a sentence. It's not even a full sentence, but it's powerful. So this is an Allen Iverson verse. Not very big, but really powerful in the Bible. So Colossians 3, 13, let's read this together. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's pray before we consider this more. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this portion of a sentence from your true and sacred words. We pray that you would do the things only you can do, that as we consider your words, that you would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in particular, that you would cause us to afresh wonder at your forgiveness in Jesus. Wonder at it. And that spirit-provoked and created wonder, we pray, would create in us a fresh ability to forgive others. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's consider what this portion of a sentence teaches us about true forgiveness. This answers four urgent questions. I say urgent because for some of you, this is very urgent in your life, that you answer these questions and the Lord helps you apply. For others, it may not feel urgent, but it's urgent that you learn them now when it doesn't feel urgent because it will become urgent. So here's the four questions about forgiveness. What does it mean? When is it needed? Why does it matter? And how is it practiced? How do we do it? So first, what does forgiveness mean? So Paul says very clearly, you can look with me again, there's three words here, they're at the heart of this, forgive one another. So at its heart, here's what true forgiveness is about. It's committing to not hurt someone back. It's about as simple as I think we can make it. Forgiveness forgiveness is committing to not hurt someone back. It's committing to not hurt someone who hurt you. Jesus used several different ideas to explain what forgiveness is and even words to describe the very things that we forgive. And a very common one was the language of debts. So you may remember this from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. This was his go-to category for explaining forgiveness. So when someone wrongs you, you sense that they have something to pay. If they hurt you, we have this instinct in us with this desire to have them hurt back. You want them to pay a debt that they owe for hurting you. And so people do this in different ways. Yelling is a form of paying someone back for hurting. Hitting is a form of paying someone back for hurting you. Plotting vengeance, revenge against someone is hurting someone who hurt you. It's paying back. But forgiveness is the commitment to release the person from paying that debt. I really like the definition that Vanitha Reisner gives, or Risner, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but she said that forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt you for hurting me. That's what forgiveness is. It's giving up the right to hurt you for hurting me. That's the essence of forgiveness. And this vision of forgiveness that Paul gives here is uniquely Christian because he says that we're to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So how has the Lord, God in Christ Jesus, how has he forgiven us? Well, let's just pause for a minute. What words come to mind? What words come to your mind when you think about how the Lord forgives you? There's a lot more to this. We see this little phrase, as the Lord forgives us. We can get so comfortable and used to the idea of forgiveness because it's so wonderful. Um, And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably felt the wonder of this early on. And then we can get so used to this idea. But let's just think about it. How has the Lord 
forgiven you if you're in Christ? Or how is he willing to forgive you if you're not yet? Well, here's seven words that summarize how Christ forgave us. He forgave us completely, forgiving all our sins, the deepest ones and the repeated ones. He forgives us sacrificially, taking the cost of our debts upon himself at the cross. He forgives us personally, not just as an abstract action, but as an act of love. The Lord Jesus, when he forgives, he is demonstrating personal love. He forgives us wholeheartedly. He does this from his deepest heart. He's happy to forgive. He forgives us purposely. He does it in order to restore us to friendship with God. The intention of forgiveness is not merely that we would be forgiven, but that we would be restored in relationship. Sixth, he forgives us liberatingly, right? There's a freedom that he gives in releasing us. He, he does this to free us from our guilt in the power of sin. He forgives us undeservedly. So at no cost to you or I, without any sense of earning, completely, sacrificially, personally, wholeheartedly, purposefully, liberatingly, undeservedly, this is how the Lord Jesus forgives. This is the wonder of how he forgives. This is at the heart of the good news of Christianity. So if you are not yet a Christian and you, you're wondering, what would it like, be like to become a Christian? What step do I need to take? What would it mean? The first step is to repent of your sin and receive this forgiveness from God. We've all lived in a way that keeps God distant. We've been aloof, aloof from him. We love the gifts and the things he gives us in this life, and we don't love the giver and God's justice rightly requires that a debt be paid. And this is why God's judgment is coming on the world one day. But the good news, the heart of Christianity, the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus has come to take our judgment upon himself, to pay our debt on the cross for us. He absorbed it, he took our punishment, and now he offers forgiveness fully and freely. So if you are not yet a Christian, you can do so this morning, right now, by coming to the Lord Jesus with empty hands of faith, turning from your sin and receiving his forgiveness. And so this is his forgiveness. And so now we, after receiving this forgiveness, are called to forgive one another with this kind of forgiveness. So here's what forgiveness is to look like in our lives. We forgive completely forgiving the whole of the sin confessed. We forgive sacrificially. You know, when you forgive someone, there is an absorbing of pain that you have to do in order to not give that payment to someone else, right? It is hard to forgive. We forgive personally as an expression of kindness. We don't forgive someone and still hate them. We forgive wholeheartedly with sincerity from our hearts. We forgive purposefully in order to begin a process of restoration. We forgive liberatingly, releasing them from payback. And we forgive undeservedly without any sense of this needing to be earned by them. So this is the forgiveness that we're called to extend. This is the uniquely Christian vision of forgiveness. Now I want to draw attention to one word that I didn't intentionally say. Um, and it might have been a word that came to your mind when we think of words to describe Christ's forgiveness. 
Did you notice I didn't say the word unconditional? I used the word undeserving instead. And I think that's often what people mean when they say that God forgives us unconditionally. Um, but it's true we don't deserve it and can't earn it. But to say that God's forgiveness is unconditional is not actually biblical. It's not how Christ forgives us. So this may be surprising to some of you, but think about it. Jesus, how does he forgive people? He doesn't do so automatically no matter what. Forgiveness is something that's given in response to someone repenting and trusting in him. The condition for forgiveness is not earning, but it is a repentant receiving. You have to want his forgiveness. So the Bible is crystal clear from beginning to end on this. To say otherwise is actually to turn God's grace into cheap grace or to embrace universalism, right? To say that God just forgives without condition means everyone's just forgiven. For everyone will be saved even if they don't repent. So in light of this, um, we want to clear up a lot of misunderstanding. We can do so if we think of three stages in forgiveness. So if you're a note taker, even if you're not, I'd encourage you to just either remember these, write them down, because this clears up a lot of misunderstanding about forgiveness. If we can think of three stages. The second stage is actually kind of forgiveness proper, but all three stages are really important to clear up misunderstandings about real forgiveness. And this can be really relevant to some of you who have struggled to forgive um, or uh, need to grow in this. So the first stage we can call a posture of forgiveness. This is a spirit of forgiveness. It's an attitude of forgiveness. This is the posture we need to have no matter what. And there aren't conditions here. When we've been wronged, we're called to have a spirit of forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. The Bible most often refers to this not actually as forgiveness, um, but as loving your enemies or something like that. It's a refusal to be bitter. It's a refusal to hold a grudge. It's a refusal to get revenge. Here's how Ken Sandy put it in his book, The Peacemaker. He said, by his grace, you seek to maintain a loving and merciful attitude towards someone who's offended you. This requires making and living out the first promise of forgiveness, which means you will not dwell on the hurtful incident or seek vengeance or retribution in thought, word, or action. Instead, what do you do? You pray for the person. You stand ready at any moment to pursue complete reconciliation as soon as he or she repents. This attitude will protect you from bitterness and resentment, even if the other person takes a long time to repent. So this is the posture of forgiveness that we need to have. Second stage, this is the granting of forgiveness. This is when the actual action of uh, forgiveness takes place. This is when we actually grant forgiveness to someone who apologizes, who repents. It requires a real space and time moment between two people. There's a real transaction between people, which is why some call this transacted forgiveness. So this is conditional. This is requiring a person to actually repent and, and want forgiveness. That's the condition they meet, not to earn their forgiveness, but because forgiveness is something that relationally has to happen between two people. It has to be extended in response to someone asking for it. Listen to Jesus from Luke 17. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. 
even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So notice he doesn't say, if your brother or sister sins against you, forgive them. No, he says, if they repent, forgive them. It takes two people for forgiveness to happen. You first need the posture of forgiveness, but then if they repent, you extend forgiveness. I remember I wronged someone at some point in a grievous way. And years later, I reached out to them to apologize. And I shared with them why what I did was wrong and that I was sorry. And this person said, oh, I forgave you years ago. And I remember feeling both like, I'm so grateful, but this is kind of unfulfilling. Like, like I need, not just like in a personal way, but something's missing here. Like, no, I'm like, I'm a, I never repented. Like, I'm apologizing now. So like, forgive me in response to repenting. Um, so in other words, what was going on there is this person rightly had a posture of forgiveness. But what we needed in that moment was the act of forgiveness to be extended. And I'm, I'm sure that functionally happened. But the language wasn't, I forgive you. It was, oh, I've, I've had a posture of forgiveness for years. So when the moment comes, there's actually words that should be exchanged. I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Third stage is also important. This is the restoration of forgiveness. So after the granting of forgiveness, sometimes more work needs to be done. Restoration is often a process. Sometimes the person who is sinned against was deeply wounded. And sometimes the person who did the sinning and the wronging needs to live with consequences. The relationship itself may need to be restored over time. So if you miss this final stage, what you can do is cheapen forgiveness sometimes by making it just a quick formality. I'm sorry, I forgive you. But no one's really understood the depth of what they did wrong or really thought through what, the, what they're forgiving um, and, and having a real genuine uh, sense of release there. So you can't just say, I'm sorry and I forgive you as a full re reset in some situations. Sometimes there's a process of restoration and rebuilding that needs to happen. This isn't to say that forgiveness isn't extended at stage two. It is to say that when forgiveness is extended, Sometimes the process of restoration isn't immediate, but it's beginning. And so I hope this clarifies a lot of misunderstanding that we have. If we have this posture of forgiveness, and then the granting of forgiveness, and then the restoration of forgiveness, it clarifies a lot of misunderstanding. So before we move on, I just want to clarify then what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not, as I've already mentioned, unconditional. The first stage, that posture of forgiveness is necessary without condition, but to actually extend forgiveness requires that someone want it and they repent. Forgiveness is also not forgetting. The Bible says, when the Bible says that God forgets our sins, it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean that he literally has no idea that it happened. Um, what it means is that he will refuse to bring it to remembrance against us. He will refuse to dwell on it against us. He will refuse to condemn us for that. So we don't forget completely mentally, but we do refuse to bring it to remembrance against someone. So in other words, we don't keep a record of wrongs in that sense. Now, most of my life I figured that's kind of like, a, yeah, don't keep a record of wrongs, don't keep dwelling on things, but I've heard of 
a guy who actually did like literally keep a record over years secretly of the wrongs that his spouse did. And my mind was blown at how he seemed to also think that the marriage could go on being healthy with him doing that. Um, so don't keep a record of wrongs, literally, um, and in, in any way. So forgiveness is not condoning sin. To forgive is not to say that the sin was no big deal. To forgive is, you don't just say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, don't worry about it. That's not forgiveness. That's condoning sin. That's dismissing it as if there was no apology actually needed. What forgiveness is, is saying what you did was wrong, and it was a big deal, and I forgive you for it. Forgiveness is not removing consequences. You can forgive someone for committing a crime against you and then write them a nice note when they're in jail. Consequences are often necessary in loving actions. So forgiveness is also not putting up with abuse. You can forgive a repentant spouse for abuse and call the police, tell the church elders, and seek safety. Forgiveness is also not the same as restoring trust. Remember, the third stage is the restoration of forgiveness. Some of you have been deeply hurt and betrayed by another person. And if they've repented, then you are called to forgive them. But that doesn't mean that you instantly trust them. Trust has to be rebuilt. So you have now a posture of openness to trusting. But it takes time for that to be rebuilt. So this is what forgiveness means. We're called to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. This is radical but healing. Second question when is forgiveness needed? Now, this is an important question, and we can go wrong in a couple extreme directions. One, on the one side, many of us can tend to almost never actually extend forgiveness or even seek forgiveness, so we make excuses. We may, if we've done something wrong, say, oh, I didn't mean it, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean, that thing I said, I didn't mean it, or, um, you know, I was just frustrated, when what you need to say is, I did mean it, I'm ashamed of it, but I did, I did get angry. And I did want to hurt you. I mean, there's been times with Christina when it feels so weird to say, but it's just totally honest, when what I want to say is, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean that. Um, but, but there's like an honesty that I have to say. It's like, you know, when I said that, in that moment, I, I did want you to feel hurt. And that was wrong. And I'm sorry. So you don't make excuses. We, we own it. And on the other hand, someone can come to you and honestly say what they've done wrong, and then you could respond and say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, you had a long day. I know you have a lot on your plate. Oh, you, I know you were just frustrated. When what you need to say is, and what I would need to hear is, thank you for apologizing. It was hurtful, and I forgive you. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is also a problem where people are so sensitive they can't let anything rest. Every little problem becomes a crisis for confrontation. They don't have a category for overlooking minor offenses. So Paul gives us here two categories for dealing with people. The categories are, do you see them here? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. See that in verse 13? Bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint, forgiving one another. So those are two categories. So first, bearing with one another. What does that mean? This is knowing that you've been wronged You've been offended, you've been sinned against, and you deliberately decide not to bring it up. This is Proverbs 19.11. It is a person's glory to overlook an offense. An offense has occurred, you overlook it. 
You don't hold it against them. You move on. Proverbs says this is a person's glory to be able to do this. Some of the greatest people among us here are those who have learned and put into practice what it looks like to just overlook offenses. Let them bounce off. They're able to absorb offenses and happily move on. So here's three general categories to have in mind for these situations where we need to just bear with someone. First, when people are bothersome. You may find some people odd or annoying. You may be bothered. I mean, we, you may. We find some people odd and annoying. We're bothered by them. But if there's no Bible verse for what they're doing wrong, then we've got to bear with them. Uh, we were out to eat last night, and our waitress, um, she, was, she was fun. And as we're leaving, she says, oh, no, I mean, like, she wasn't annoying. I was thinking that category now. As we're leaving, she said, um, be careful out there. People are crazy. I'm thinking, you know, I mean, that's about right. So she's just saying, you know, get ready, buckle up, bear with people out there. Second, when it's a minor offense, so when someone overlooks you or doesn't appreciate all that you do for their good and the good of others there, or when people don't reach out to you when you're suffering, or when people don't seem concerned about your problems. Third would be when someone's sin isn't a pattern. So someone may do something that is clearly wrong, but it's out of character for them. You know this isn't a repeated thing, and you sense it probably won't happen again. It's a slip-up. It's not a pattern in life. Now, in many of these cases, you can overlook it and move on. If it's a pattern, then it does become a bigger problem. So for their good, for the good of others, it's good to bring it up. But very often, we can overlook things in people's lives if it's not a pattern. In all these cases, we can bear with one another. And this matter of bearing with one another is necessary, necessary for a gospel culture in a church. We have to have this category of the glory of overlooking offenses for true community. Because you have to overlook differences and small things and difficulties. And isn't this what God is like with us? Isn't he endlessly patient with our quirks, our idiosyncrasies, the things that could bother, and even very patient in bringing up the sins in our lives to not just pile on all the conviction at once? So bearing with one another is the first category. And then the second category Paul gives us is the one we're thinking about here, which is forgiving one another. And he says, if one has a complaint against another, assuming a legitimate complaint, forgiving each other. This is when something is significant enough that it would not be good to overlook it. This is when someone's sin is a major offense or it's a repeated pattern in their life or it's caused this chasm in your relationship that you can't get over here. So in these occasions, we need to walk through this process of forgiveness, assuring that we have a posture of forgiveness, and if they apologize, then to forgive them. Christina and I had to learn these, these two categories, both of them on our first year of marriage. Neither of us really knew how to forgive and practice it well. If she sinned against me, I tended to just bottle it up and ignore it, or just leave the room for a while, cool off, and then move on as if it didn't happen. If I sinned against her, she would tend to dismiss it as no big deal. So both of those look like ways of bearing with one another. But actually for us, it wasn't healthy because they, neither of those were acknowledging sin as sin. And there was actually no opportunity for forgiveness to even be extended. 
So if we knew that if we brought those patterns into our marriage, we would never actually have moments of forgiveness. I'd ignore everything she did, and she would downplay everything I did. And so we were committed to actually repenting for sin, apologizing, and extending forgiveness to one another. And it took time. I would say, I'm sorry for being impatient with you or something like this. And she would say, oh, it's no big deal. And I'm like, no, no, like I, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And then she'd have to, I forgive you. Um, and then there'd be times when um, we'd both have issues doing this with one another, either dismissing things as not a big deal or ignoring things, and we had to bring it up. And so we got very good at bringing things up. It was really good for us. We would, we would view every sin here as like a, an invisible brick that was put between us. I'm a little nervous to what was just whispered to my wife there. <laughs> we view every little sin as a, a brick between us, invisible, and we knew that, you know, one brick's not a big deal, right? Three bricks aren't a big deal. You get enough of those bricks piled up over time, over the course of years, and you have a wall that's not coming down um, between you two. And a lot of marriages end because these walls are there of unaddressed and unforgiven sin. But here's another lesson we needed to learn, and this I think we had to learn maybe halfway into that first year of marriage. This is mainly my lesson I needed to learn. I got so committed to making sure that we actually would have these reconciliation conversations and have the gospel actually function in our marriage that I stopped practicing the category of bearing with one another. So I realized that we're having, talking about a lot of issues that at some point I'm like, you know, I probably could have overlooked some of those, actually a lot of them. So I needed to realize that, okay, yes, a brick was placed there by either her sin or my sin. Um, but we don't have to talk about every sin, every brick to remove it. I actually can just grab it and toss it aside without her ever even knowing. Right? I can overlook that offense. It still has to be removed. I've got to consciously overlook it. Um, so that was a lesson we needed, I needed to learn. So both those categories are, healthy, are important for a healthy relationship. Otherwise, bricks pile up in a relationship and so we have to remove the bricks by either overlooking them or addressing them for reconciliation. Third question, why does forgiveness matter? Well, Paul gives a list of virtues surrounding this one of forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't the only one here. Compassion, kindness, patience, love, and so forth. But forgiveness is the only one he lists here with this kind of emphasis. He repeats the command twice and he adds a must. Do you see that here? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So why the emphasis? Well, if you think about the teaching of Jesus, that is consistent with his teaching. Because Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is strong and it is surprising. He ties our forgiveness of others to God's forgiveness of us. We're all familiar with this, even if we haven't thought about it deeply, because it's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Remember when he teaches us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he finished that prayer by adding this. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So how's that fit with grace? How is that not earning our forgiveness by forgiving others? And the answer is that our forgiveness of others is evidence of being forgiven by Jesus. 
and the Father. There is a psychological connection between being forgiven by God and forgiven, forgiving others. So if you refuse to forgive someone, and I know this is a real struggle and can be very hard, but if you refuse to forgive someone, it's not just a minor sin. This is the kind of heart issue that can call into question whether or not you really embrace being forgiven by God and have his forgiveness. Because if you are forgiven by God, it means that you have been humbled. You embrace that you have massive sin against a holy God. You embrace that you deserve hell for it. You embrace his free forgiveness of you. You know you have been forgiven completely and freely and wholeheartedly by God in Christ. So now, with that, how can you refuse to forgive someone else? If you won't forgive others, it shows that you do not actually grasp your own sin as a big problem and God's grace as wonderful. So the assumption here is, if you experience God's forgiveness, it will transform you by the power of the Spirit. If you truly encounter grace, and God's forgiveness isn't just an abstraction, a little, little punch ticket that you think you got, but it's actually you, you have felt forgiveness of the Lord, then that is a power that enters into you and enables you to forgive others. That's why forgiving others matters. So it's the necessary outcome of being forgiven by God. You see that you have a mountain of sin piled up before God, and he has leveled it like a plain. And then now you look at other people, and you see mounds of sin against you, but it's a mound compared to your mountain, and so you can level that too. Now, I know it's hard, so our last question, how is forgiveness practiced? How do we get forgiveness functioning in our lives? Now, for some of you, this may not be emotionally hard, but it will still take work because as you look at your life, you're thinking, yeah, like when was the last time I actually asked for forgiveness? Not just kind of acknowledge that I might have done something wrong while I was frustrated and tired, but actually apologize. Or when was the last time you actually said the words, I forgive you? So sometimes it will, it's not going to be emotionally hard, but it'll just take a lot of work to create those moments. For others of you, though, this may feel emotionally impossible. I know some of you have said, I could never forgive him of that. I could never forgive her of that. I will never forgive her of that. Or you'll say, I forgive him, but I'll never forget. Which sounds to me like you don't really forgive him right? So how do we actually do this? Let's walk through those three stages in closing again, just practically here. That first stage, the posture of forgiveness. How do you get that? You get it from resting in Jesus's forgiveness of you and your sins. Paul says, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Jesus is not just the model, but he is the motivation. He's not just the pattern for our forgiveness, but he is the power for it. So if you are unable to forgive someone, part of the dynamic going on in your soul is that you feel like their sin against you is greater than your sin against God, and therefore you are unable to forgive them, even though you think it's fine that God's able to forgive you. You think, yes, God can forgive me, but there's no way I could forgive that person. But if you really see that your sin is so grievous that it took the Son of God to die on the cross for you, then you can see that this is a mountain God levels into a plain. Then you can look out at others and realize, okay, 
God, help me then forgive them of these sins, which actually are not just sins against me anyways, they're sins against you as well. So if you want to double-click on this thought, I'd encourage you to read Matthew 18, the whole of it. And Jesus tells a story there as well of this psychological dynamic of being forgiven a massive amount and how incongruent it is to be forgiven a massive amount and then be unwilling to forgive someone else. So if you're struggling to forgive someone, you need to look back at the gospel, dwell on the wonder of Christ's forgiveness, let that humble you and melt you and sweeten you to be able to forgive that other person. That's the posture of forgiveness. And it can even help to remember then, this doesn't mean you're condoning sin. It doesn't mean they don't have consequences. It doesn't mean there's not accountability that they need in their life. Even knowing that can then free you to do the work of forgiveness itself. So that's the posture. Second, the granting of forgiveness. You need to decide, is this particular issue important for me to address with the person? Because sometimes maybe you do just need to bear with the person. But if it's serious and if it's a pattern, then you may need to bring it up. Or maybe you're in the situation where you need to confess your own sin to someone. And in either case, if someone comes to you and confesses, you need to forgive them as Christ forgave you. So this doesn't mean you just cheaply say, I forgive you. If someone had a massive offense against you, that may take time. You may even say, and this is fine, you say, thank you for saying that. I want to forgive you. I'm going to need some time to process this. And I'll get back with you. And then get back with them and forgive them. And as you forgive, you're giving a promise not to hurt them for this sin, not to bring it up against them, not to keep a record of wrongs. But any consequences that need to be there are acts of love. And now the third and final stage is the process of restoration. For most sins, that process should actually just be immediate. The person apologizes, you forgive them, and you move on. Most of the apologies in our home um, are like that. Just, I'm sorry for doing this to you. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Hug, smile, move on. Um, but sometimes restoration takes time. Sometimes trust needs to be rebuilt. Sometimes joy will take a long time to be restored. Sometimes the wound takes time to heal. Consequences are still needed. A plan of accountability may need to be in place. In my experience, this is especially true in cases where you've been betrayed deeply, where there's been sexual sin or abuse. Those who sin in this way often don't realize the depth of their sin, even if they should apologize. They need to understand that and they need to be patient. They need to deepen their repentance and appreciate the depth of forgiveness that they need. And they need to commit to a process involving other people for accountability and change. So let me just close with a couple final encouragements. Um, men, if you, are, if you have a family, you are to lead your home in this and be a pace setter in repenting and extending forgiveness. Fathers and mothers, apologize to your children. Don't just teach them how to do this to one another, but model what it looks like to apologize to them when you wrong them and say the words, right? I'm sorry for doing this. Will you forgive me? Thank you. For those of you who are younger, learn to do this early on and set good patterns of acknowledging when you've been wrong or saying I forgive you um, to other people. And then in the church, let's continue to bear with one another in love. And if you offend someone, make it easy for them to forgive you by confessing it without excuse and asking for forgiveness. And if you have to bring something up with someone, go with a posture of forgiveness. And this will create a community that's compelling in our community. And so, like so many of these, this is an all the more for so many of you. 
right? Keep going. Let's keep doing this. Let's keep cultivating this gospel culture. And this will be a powerful witness in our culture because our culture is going through a moment right now that's really good at calling out injustice and really bad at extending grace. Um, we can cancel, but we can't forgive. And so this is Christianity's unique power of forgiveness, the felt forgiveness of Christ received and then extended to others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your generous mercy to us. Thank you for forgiving us in the Lord Jesus at great cost and done willingly. We pray that your word would continue to have a power, powerful effect in our lives this afternoon and this week, and that you would give us everything we need here by your Spirit's power to forgive and to receive forgiveness. In Jesus' name.